0: So, Munaza, on average, how long do you think you spent underwater? Uh, I don't think I can even answer that question. A normal amount? What if I told you there was a job that required you to be underwater up to four hours a day? I have a lot of questions. And the first one is, do I get to bring floaties? You do you, Munaza. I'm Gabby Salazar. And I'm Inezza Alam. And we're National Geographic Explorers. And we get the question all the time, how do you become an explorer? And what does an explorer do? Well, we're going to tell you. I interviewed Claire Fiesler, who co-wrote the book, No Boundaries With Me. And she has spent hundreds of hours underwater.
1: have yeah, spent quite a bit of time underwater. <laughs> like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours underwater when you're measuring things underwater, you can hear your breath and it's like, (sighs) it's just that. And when you're, and often you're kind of upside down and floating and you can kind of learn to balance yourself almost like you're in like a, a space capsule, just floating weightless. And it's just an incredible feeling to just be discovering what's in front of you as far as corals and places that you've seen change over time. And then just to be kind of weightless and focused. And it's just an incredible experience. And, and I, I feel really privileged that I've been able to do that. And sometimes, sometimes I
0: can't believe that, I, that that's my 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 job. But it is. Surprise. That sounds so nice and relaxing, floating in the sea. It sure does. But Claire has another reason why she likes it so much.
1: The thing I love about it is that it allows me to focus on only this one thing that I'm doing. I think I've spoken a lot more and more now that I'm older that, you know, I've had ADD or ADHD, which is attention um, deficit hyperactive disorder um, since I was a kid. And it can be a superpower sometimes in that um, it's, it's allows you to hyper-focus on something you're really interested in, even though sometimes it can make you very distracted. And for me, my ADHD has become a little bit of a superpower when I'm underwater, because when I'm underwater, I'm hyper, hyper focused on what I'm doing, whether it's measuring corals or running an experiment. So working underwater has become like a great environment for me, um, or working in the field or just working in the field where there's just no distractions at all. It's just been, um, that's really kind of where I thrive. That's why I love field work.
0: Oh, Wow. That's an interesting perspective I hadn't considered. Now that working in the ocean sounds so enticing, I'll back it up and tell you what Claire actually does, or better yet, I'll let her tell you.
1: I guess I would say scientist and journalist. Um, To be longer, maybe conservation biologist and science journalist, Uh, but kind of explorer is a term. It's like a catch-all for all of those things. So let's say explorer.
0: A scientist and a journalist? Both very big jobs. Yeah, and Claire thought that she couldn't be both. She thought that she wasn't cut out for being a scientist.
1: So for me, I, I love my mom and <laughs> mom, I love you. But so whatever I say right now, don't take personally. But I was interested in science as a kid growing up. And my mom, I think, had a, a sense in her mind of what a scientist was as someone like stuck in a lab. And I remember, I remember her saying to me, like, why do you want to be a scientist? You're so outgoing. You're so athletic. You like being outside, you know, pursue something that, What allowed you to engage those things. And so when I left, when I, you know, kind of graduated from college, I went into environmental media um, and storytelling and journalism. And I think it's because that voice was in the back of my head growing up. And I think it's just because that stereotype was impressed on my mom and myself, and my mom and and myself too, I guess. So what changed her mind then? Mm -hmm.
0: Well, like many people, she needed to see it to believe that she could be it.
1: When I was working my first job out of college, at National Geographic in their natural history department, um, making films, natural history films. I had the opportunity to make a lifetime achievement reel for a really famous scientist named Sylvia Earle. And she's a Marine scientist. And she spent a lot of time at the Jersey shore where I grew up. And I spent like two weeks in the basement of National Geographic in the archives make putting together this video for her award. And I kind of was just immersed in this world. and, And she was so kind of, you know, out in, in the thick of it. And, I remember kind of spending so much time seeing her diving and, and speaking and kind of being athletic and outgoing and thinking to myself, okay, this is the type of scientist I want to be. And so, you know, a couple months later, I, I left my job at National Geographic making films and I went back to grad school to pursue a career in you know, in eventually science.
0: That's amazing. It seems like Sylvia Earle's story had a huge impact on Claire. I can see how you both came up with the idea for the book you wrote. Exactly. But before we even started thinking about the book, Claire had a project she was doing in graduate school, where she took photographs of female scientists. She was a trained journalist, after all, and had seen firsthand the effect a good story could have on someone.
1: Like I I took a picture of another graduate student um, who was um, really influential in... Getting support for other Black graduate students um, in the medical field, and I I also photographed a young girl who was really interested in science and had just gone to science camp. I photographed, um, you know, a uh, a wildlife reserve biologist who was, you know, going to these remote parts of these North Carolina swamps by herself and getting you know, stung by wasps to try to, you know, try to keep the reserve wildlife protected. And it just kind of showed me the diversity of women. Um, and, and I remember I presented that, that, that um, I remember I presented that and I got coverage in, Nash, in National Geographic for doing that project. And then kind of from there, Gabby, you approached me um, at some point about making this beyond North Carolina.
0: Yeah. I I remember seeing this project and just feeling really inspired and also, and I grew up in North Carolina, so I think it probably hit home a little bit there too. And I, but I also thought, wow, like we need to do this for a broader audience and we need to do it for kids because when I was growing up and I know we both talked about this, I didn't feel like I had, you know, kind of accessible role models that Mm -hmm. I could, and relatable role models that I could Mm -hmm. look up to as women in science. So I knew about women from history and I knew about, you know, some women who were kind of at the peak of their careers because Mm -hmm. they were famous already, but there wasn't anybody that I really knew of that was in their thirties or in their Mm forties and maybe in their twenties even, and going Mm -hmm. through, you know, things that I thought I might be experiencing in the next decade or two. And so I was really desperate for those type of role models. And so yeah, we got together and, and we wrote a book.
1: <laughs> I know. And it was really your idea to write a book. And my photo project for North Carolina, it was about kind of women, uh, you know, who weren't kind of at the pinnacle of careers. They were just kind of your everyday female scientists and. Um, who were kind of boots on the ground now. And I remember when we were like, let's write a book. Like we wanted to we wanted to do that, more of that, but kind of at a global level.
0: That's how the book No Boundaries started. And it turned into this podcast too. So I think it was a good idea at least. I do too. Okay, so we've seen Claire's journalistic side. Now I'm curious, what is her research about?
1: I study coral reefs, which are kind of on the front line of climate change today. And one of the questions I've pursued is can marine protected areas, essentially kind of national parks of the ocean, can they help add some sort of protection, mitigation? They act like a buffer against climate change and so that these coral reefs can survive. And so I've actually come to do a lot of kind of what we call interdisciplinary science, which is like studying the environment, but also studying the people that are helping to protect the environment and so that's been a really joy for me to kind of um draw from many skill sets and gabby i know that you've become (laughs) similarly like very interdisciplinary it's funny how you and i our worlds have kind of collided in this way um but yeah that's one of the questions i'm interested in
0: wow Climate change is such a complex problem and something so important to our future. It's hard to think about it and not get scared. I hear a lot of doom and gloom these days. Yeah, me too, but I think that's why working on it is so important. And Claire had an experience early on that showed her that positive change can happen and make a difference in this huge global issue.
1: And I remember very vividly you know, medical waste washing up and I was a young kid like three or four years old and and, and that time period is referred to as like the syringe tide. Like literally medical syringes, um, things that you would get a shot with coming up on the beaches. And for almost two years, we we couldn't even go to the beach. We would drive up to a lake up in upstate New York to just kind of go someplace that was safe for me as a kid. And fast forward 20 years later and I'm a beach lifeguard in my hometown on the Jersey shore and I'm kayaking in the morning with dolphins and seeing whales you know, blow off the, off the jetties and, and seeing all this fish. And so I mentioned that because early on I had this experience of, of kind of like environments in the ocean can recover. And I just happened to grow up next to one of the greatest like <laughs> ocean recovery success stories. And that left a real impression on me.
0: It's not something you hear about a lot, that wild spaces can recover. It's really nice to think about. Right, and while making sure that shoreline could recover doesn't necessarily solve all our problems, it shows that we can make a difference. It's going to be a lot of little things put together that's going to help, and it's gonna be a lot of hard work. That sounds like the challenging part of Claire's work right there, that she's just looking at a piece of a much bigger system and won't be able to find one thing to fix it all. Well, that, and like everyone, Claire sometimes feels like she shouldn't be where she is, like she hasn't earned it, like she's an imposter. But that's a pretty common feeling, especially for women working in science.
1: So do do I feel like an imposter? Absolutely. There's even a word for this. It's called imposter syndrome, and I think it affects girls and women especially. And how do you break imposter syndrome? I think it's breaking this sense of what, type of scientist you think other people want you to be and becoming the scientist that you want to be. And, and that's what I've tried to do. Because the more you learn about the world, the more you realize how little you know. And so I always think to myself, you know, someone's going to re- realize that I don't have as many papers published as I wanted, or I, I you know, haven't done this you know type of experiment or whatever it may be. Um, but the thing you have to remember is no one really knows what they're
0: doing. (laughs) No one, no one knows it all. People know so little. It's great to know that someone as accomplished as Claire feels that way sometimes. I've definitely felt that before. Now I have to ask, is there something that Claire always takes with her in the field? I know the answer to that question, but I'll let Claire say it.
1: Oh, I don't even have to think about it. Here's my answer. Headlamps, 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 just always headlamps, lots of headlamps. Gabby, when you got married, you're my friend. I gave you matching headlamps to you and your husband. Do you remember this?
0: Absolutely. For your field experience. They're like right beside (laughs) me on the desk, actually. Um, That's very funny. And they are very useful things. You never know when you're going to need a headlamp.
1: Never go into the field without them.
0: Headlamps are classic Explorer gear. Speaking of gear, Claire had a gear mishap that was resolved in a very unique way. It's a great story. I one time lost my dive mask like the kind of like the
1: goggle type thing that you wear when you're when you're diving off the side of a boat at my at, at the site where i study where i've done a lot of my coral reef research and it kind of went and it was part of the ocean where it was like 100 feet deep and i was like i'm not gonna go get that i've got more back at the field station like it's just gone and then a year later a colleague of mine saw a sea turtle at this same field site munching on something. And he kind of shooed the sea turtle away and he realized it was an old dive mask and he brought it up and it was mine. And we washed it off and I used it again. This field <laughs> mask, this, this dive mask that was lost for a year. We used it. We found a turtle munched on it. We found it and I used it again. And how crazy is that? It just goes to show that like, you know, weird crazy stuff happens in the field and it's kind of really fun.
0: The ocean had her back or it didn't want her to litter. Two ways of looking at it I guess. Either way I'm gonna need all my lost things returned to me by animals from now on. I request this as well please. So does Claire have any advice for anyone who wants to look into marine science? Of course she does. She has some great advice. I would
1: say make a career in marine science that fits you and doesn't conform to what you think you need to do. Like you don't need to be out there measuring sharks, uh, you know, nose to tail or measuring corals like I do. Maybe you're really into robotics and you design underwater ROVs or really you're, maybe you're really into like data and you're taking, you know, oceanographic data and modeling, you know, the earth's, you know, the oceanic conveyor belt. You know, maybe you really love interviewing people and you become a marine social scientist and you interview and try to analyze, you know, the histories, the oral histories of people that live next to the ocean, how the, they've seen the ocean change. There's so many ways to be a marine scientist. So make, use your own talents and just get good at that and apply it to ocean problems.
0: There's so many ways to be involved in science, you just have to pick one. Like a choose-your-own-adventure career. Exactly. Thanks for listening, future explorers. If you want to learn more about Claire Fiesler and her work, check out the book No Boundaries about Women Scientists and Explorers. It was written by me, Gabby Salazar, and my fellow explorer, Claire Fiesler, who you heard from in this episode. And it's available wherever books are sold.
2: Thanks for listening. Join us next time for our final episode of the season as Gabby and Munaza talk about their own experiences in science and exploration. How We Explore is hosted by Gabby Salazar and Manaza Alam. This podcast was written by Allison Shaw and Emily Everhart. Rebecca Cunningham is our audio producer and Claire Fiesler is our editorial consultant and field recording specialist. Music composed by Ijo Leo with guitar by Axel Borgmo. Curtis Cross is our audio engineer. Gabby Salazar is our producer and Emily Everhart is our executive producer. Special thanks to all interviewees for agreeing to participate in this project.